Earlier this month, we held a missions-intensive seminar with our brother Peter Neuberger that you heard in the most recent episode. These are the recordings from the sessions. We hope you are blessed. Yeah, it's an honor to be with you today. It's been fun getting to know Adam over the last few years um, and some of the folks from his church like Brett and uh, Rocco came a few months back uh, to Africa. So we've met up in uh, Rwanda. Uh, well, we knew each other before you came to Rwanda. Um, we have mutual friends. Like I know Abner is a very good friend of this house and I've known Abner for years and years and years. I remember you know, when he was really starting an itinerant ministry, he would come to my home church in Maryland. So this is before, so this is a long time ago. It was like 15, over 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, he's, he's reading off his paper and, uh, you know, he's grown into who he's become today, which is awesome to see. I love Abner. Um, looking forward to hosting him next May in Zambia. Uh, that'll be really fun. And, uh, so it's, but it's been really great getting to know Adam over these last couple years. I really enjoy his company, his presence, um, and uh, who he is in Christ. Um, I have such a strong value for that. Um, there's a lot of people who will give you, you know, the, the chocolate-covered cherry, uh, but Adam gives it to you straight. And, uh, but he loves, but he has a revelation of the Father's love in the midst of that, and that's always a beautiful thing. So anyway... Um, so it's good to be here. Um, so, um, oh, yeah. so we're going to talk about Romans 8 today. I know this is a missions intensive and, oh, that's great. I'll, we'll get there in a second. Um, and uh, I find that Romans 8 is my favorite chapter of the Bible. Romans is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, I, I just love it. And... Um, Normally when you do like missions intensive, you might end up in the Great Commission passages, um, you know, in Matthew 28, Mark 16, uh, and such. Um, but um, in my studies of Romans, and specifically Romans 8, um, I, find, I find everything about mission right in that middle of that chapter. And so we're going to dive into that. So this is going to be, the first part of this message is going to be slightly theological. So I'm going to break down some heavy theological topics in about a half hour uh, as we go through. So it's going to be a lot. This is meat. I'm not necessarily giving milk. I'm going to give some meat, but I know you guys are ready for meat if you're here on a Saturday morning. And so this should be really good. Um, and uh, I'm excited about it. So I'll give you a little background uh, with where all this came from. So this, this message is a, almost like a two-year journey uh, now. Um, so obviously two and a half years ago, something big happened in the world. You may have heard of it. It's like this COVID thing happened. I'm not sure if you know about it. I don't know if it was here in New Jersey, uh, but it was kind of big in some areas. Um, and uh, I'm just grateful we were in America at the time when all that happened um, on a furlough, um, having my son uh, who was born on January 1st of 2020. And um, so obviously COVID happened and it's all con everything's confused, right? No one knows what's going on. It's all weird. It's all strange. Everything's canceled. You get fresh. So for a couple months, I was really frustrated up in Alaska. Like, hey, I had to cancel all my mission trips. I'm just sitting here. I need to be doing something. You know, the, the, the evangelist on the inside, but you can't talk to anybody, can't hug anybody, can't breathe on anybody, can't do anything, can't go anywhere. It's frustrating. And so 
Uh, after a couple months, uh, I finally got a revelation from the Lord that um, I need to pull my, my head out of my wahoo um, and uh, focus, on what, focus on some positive things and use this season as a great opportunity to, uh, for personal growth and other areas as well. And so I was like, okay. And so eventually that led me into doing a verse-by-verse breakdown of Romans 1 through 8. On I have an African Facebook page called Missionary Peter, um, just because you just have to do that sometimes. Um, and so I did a verse-by-verse uh, study on that over the course of like five and a half months. So from July 2020 to December 2020. And out of that, Holy Spirit really brought a lot of fresh revelation um, out of the book of Romans, really, it really like births something that, that's been growing in my heart. So I was constructing uh, a couple messages out of, actually I was constructing a message out of that, and then I got another message out of that. And so as I was putting it together, what was really cool is I had an opportunity uh, in June to go to Baylor University to attend a seminar by N.T. Wright. Uh, N.T. Wright is an amazing theologian. He's 200 years, we're going to talk about N.T. Wright as one of the foremost theologians of our time, in my opinion. Um, dude is brilliant, but he has a revelation of the kingdom, and he has, uh, he has Holy Spirit as well. And so that's a great combination if you want to dive into some theologians. Um, and so, but the seminar um, was on, actually it was four days, and it was all on Romans 8. Four days, Romans 8, and the subtitle was... Um, uh, the Son, the Spirit, and the Kingdom. So if you want to overview, that's kind of what's happening in Romans 8. And um, it was so life-giving. Like, you know, I'm, I took 17 pages of notes, and I'm just typing, I'm speaking in tongues. My nephew's next to me, I'm giving him high fives, he's giving me high fives. And we're just like, you know. And uh, what was cool is my Uncle Paul was there too. And uh, my Uncle Paul is a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor in Texas. Uh, my nephew is studying to be a pastor at Elam uh, in New York. Uh, and me, so like three different generational lines of Newburgers were all here to get some revelation on Romans 8 and encounter Jesus, which is really cool. And um, my, my Uncle Paul, uh, he majored in Greek in seminary. And he's kind of more cessationist, um, you know. And so... Uh, so N.T. Wright, as he was sharing from Romans 8, he had his own rendering because N.T. Wright is fluent in Greek uh, and he's a scholar like that. So he's done his own rendering of, well, most of the New Testament. And so, but then I had my Uncle Paul as a resource. So as N.T. Wright's preaching out of Romans 8, his rendering, his translation from the, uh, the original text, my Uncle Paul's right there. So I'm asking Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, is he doing this right? And he's like, this is a terrible Uncle Paul imitation, but... Yes, Peter, he's doing that really good. I, this is really great. And um, so, if my uh, cessationist, Missouri Synod, Lutheran uncle, pastor, can agree with an Anglican, Holy Spirit-filled bishop on the rendering of Romans 8, then I submit it's good enough to bring to you guys this morning. Amen. That was a good time. I, I look forward to doing something like that again. That was just, it was just amazing. Um, if I ever get an audience with him, though, I'm going to ask him, like, one of these times, just release the spirit. Because he did, it's really cool. This is an aside. I'm, 
it's just, you have to deal with this. But there's this really cool moment. He's doing an overview of the Book of Romans on the first session. And when he finished, the Holy Spirit was just thick in the room. We're in this like ancient church on the, at the campus. Uh, it's Baptist church. It's got ornate windows and everything. And like Holy Spirit was just thick in the room. I got tears well. And I'm like, if he gives a call right now, pastors in here will get saved. Yes. But he didn't. <laughs> so if I ever get an audience with him, I want to talk to him and just be bold enough to do that. So anyway, it's going to happen someday. No, I'm telling you, it's true. I live in Africa. I, have, I preach in many churches where I go, I hope the pastor responds to the altar call. Just saying. We laugh because it's true. Okay, so here we go. So we're going to dive into Romans 8. Um, so here, let me give you a quick overview of what's happening with Romans 8. Uh, you can divide it up into three sections, okay? Uh, verses 1 through 11 is the introduction. And if you wanted to sh uh, give a, a short synopsis of what's happening there, you could just say, no condemnation. That's what that first section of Romans 8 is about. And then if you go to the end, verses 31 to 42... That can be summed up with this synopsis of no separation. Because that's where your passage are. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So Romans 8 is bookended with no condemnation and no separation. All right. So keeping that in mind, we're going to dive into the middle. And the middle section can get divided up in uh, several other ways. Uh, verses 12 through 16 is on sonship. 17 to uh, 27, 28. Um, is on suffering and glory, and then 28 to 30 is on justification. And so we're going to dive, move through all of this pretty quick, so I know it's going to be a lot, um, but I'm going to highlight certain things um, so that we have an idea of what Paul's talking about in this chapter, and we're going to see how that relates to our mission here on planet Earth as children of God. Are you ready? Okay. Here we go. So we're going to start Romans 8. We'll start with the 14th verse. Uh, we're going to go through uh, verse 21. So we're going to take this in a couple sections. Um, so this is the NT right rendering from the Greek approved by my Uncle Paul. Um, so we have spirit-filled believers and cessationists agreeing on this rendering. It's amazing. And so here we go. All right. Um, All who are led by the Spirit of God, you see, are, children, are God's children. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery, did you, to go back into a state of fear? No. You received the spirit of sonship, new covenant. Now, as I go, I have some brackets, and those terms and brackets we're going to explore when I finish. And then I also have some scripture references I put in that most of them will probably be in the mind of Paul as he's writing this to the church in Rome. Okay? So one other quick thing about... Uh, the book of Romans is heavily influenced by the book of Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, and Isaiah. Those are your four biggest uh, areas where Paul's alluding to as he's writing this book. So you'll see those references in there. You can reference it. You can. Um, we're not going to go through all the scriptures, but these are some of the ideas that Paul has in his head as he's writing this. Okay. So, like I said, we're gonna we got some teaching, we got some theology, and then we're gonna. Once we build up, we're going to come down a roller coaster pretty fast. So, here we go. Um, so, no, you received the spirit of sonship, 
new covenant, in whom we call out, Abba, Father. When that happens, it is the Spirit itself testifying along with our spirit that we are God's children. New image. And if we're children, we are also heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with the Messiah, as long as we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. This is how I work it out. The sufferings we go through in the present time are not worth putting on the scale alongside the glory that is going to be unveiled for us. Yes, creation itself is on tiptoe with expectation, eagerly awaiting the moment when God's children will be revealed. Creation, you see, was subjected to pointless futility, not of its own volition, but because of the one who placed it in this subjection, in the hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to decay to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. New creation. So that's the first part we're going we're gonna to chew on, and then we'll get into the next part. So, in the New Testament and in the book of Romans, we have some pretty big themes that are going on. There's a variety of things, but we're going to uh, focus on the ones I put in brackets uh, in this passage. Okay, And so the first theme that we have is we have New Covenant. Okay, New Covenant is what it is. We have a New Covenant with God. It's not the Mosaic Covenant. It's not rooted uh, in the Old Testament, but this is a New Covenant. Uh, we see in Hebrews 8, it talks about this is a better covenant with better promises mediated through Christ Jesus. Okay, And so one of the main purposes, there can be a variety of main purposes, but one of the main purposes of the new covenant was for God to undo the sin of Adam, to undo what happened when Adam fell, and to rescue humanity for the purpose of rescuing all of creation. All right? So this is how we go about now the original commission, which was what? To multiply and look after the garden, except now it's not a garden, it's the whole planet. It's all of creation. Our metron has changed. And so this new covenant, through the power of transformation, it brings about a new creation, and it brings also about a new image on the earth. If we want to look at it a different way, it's a retelling of the Exodus story of Israel from the book of Exodus, right? So it's like this. The Jews came out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and were brought out of that into the freedom of the promised land. Now, for us, it's not just the Jewish people, it's everybody. Now we are coming out of a land of a land of slavery to sin into the freedom that comes in Christ. So there's the parallels that is happening here in the book of Romans. Um, and so what we can call this then is this is the new exodus that all of us have been on and many others will continue to be on as we leave slavery to sin into the freedom that comes when we come to Christ. So there's a lot of other aspects to that. No, we no longer have a law written on stone, but now God writes the law of love on our heart and it's written on the tablets of our heart. There's a lot of parallels and that's its own little message as well. Uh, so we have a new covenant. And that new covenant brings about, one of the things I talked about was a new image. And uh, Ephesians 4.24 is a good reference where we're taking on the image of Christ. 
And so if we look back in Genesis 1, God made humans in his own image. All right. And it says to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and rule over it. The original plan was for humans to reflect God's nature and character like a mirror into the world. We were designed to be human partners in creation. We see this in Genesis 2.19, where he invites Adam to come and name the creatures of creation. God ceded some of that authority and responsibility to his creation so that we would be partners with him in this creation to steward the earth. However, we had a problem, right? Sin came into the world, and sin brought a corruption to the image that God had created in humankind. It caused decay to come in, not just for us, but for all of creation, which is one of the huge issues that we have here. And so this is why the new covenant brings about a new image, because we must be born again, we must be raised from the dead if we are to become God's image bearers again. We can't be God's image bearers if we're still corrupted to sin and unregenerated by the process of transformation through the gospel. So we must die to ourselves and be born alive in Christ. So this is why if you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. If you want to take on the new image that exists now in Christ through what he has done, we must be born again. And if we want to use some terminology, this is the new Genesis being born again. So we have a new Genesis and we have a new Exodus. And all of this leads into a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are new creations in Christ. There's a new creation that is being brought forth on the earth. We are now renewed humans. We are tabernacles of God's Spirit. God's Spirit now dwells inside of us. A holy new creation. Before Christ came, nothing like this has ever been seen. But now the divine lives inside of us. And so part of this new creation and part of the process of a new covenant is that we are not saved from the world, but we are saved for the world. And that is a huge difference. N.T. Wright said this. This is a funny phrase, and I'll explain it. But the resurrection is life after life after death. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is oftentimes when we come to Jesus and we experience salvation and we, we begin to experience this, um, we, that's, that's it. That's as far as people go, right? We, we, try, we get the ticket to heaven, everything's great. But in reality, the resurrection is about how we live after that moment. Resurrection power is imbued to us and we are filled with that life so that we then live a completely different life after that moment we say yes to Jesus. So the resurrection is about life after life after death. Am I moving too much? Okay. And so as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, now we are God's royal people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And now we are carrying his image. And we are, again, stewarding and ruling over creation. And so, as Paul writes, as we step into this truth, 
This is how creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption into freedom. And I find that very interesting, and we'll explore that a little more in a bit. But it's not the second coming of Christ that comes to liberate creation. Paul writes, it's when the children of God are unveiled. That will bring a liberation to creation, which is longing for its freedom. And so all of this then, a new creation brings about what? A new heavens and a new earth. It's creation reborn. It's creations that is set right because the children of God steward and reign in it. So if we wanted to say it this way, we could say it this way. Two sentences of theology. Ready? God uses the new covenant to rescue humans so humans can rescue creation. There is a new exodus underway, the means of which a new genesis is realized that creates a new image on the earth and brings about a completely new creation. A lot of new things going on. You want a couple bonus ones? All right, here's a couple bonus ones. There's a new temple, right? 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 6.19, we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. Zion in the Old Testament is referred to often as the location of the dwelling place of God on earth. It is figuratively and also literally Mount Zion, the place where heaven meets earth. That's the place where the temple was built. Okay, And so it's the place where the divine presence, God's spirit, came to earth and touched earth, the creation, in the Holy of Holies in the temple. All right? So you had the Spirit of God, and you had creation intermingling in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Now, however, God's not dwelling in temples made of flesh. He's, I'm sorry, God is not dwelling in temples made of stone. I said that wrong. God is dwelling in temples made of flesh. We are living stones, as Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so we are the new temple of God. We are where heaven God's Spirit meets earth, our physical body, because we are come from the earth. We are the places where heaven and earth intersect. And so everywhere we go then, we bring an intersection between heaven and earth, wherever we step, because we are the intersection. We are the two places that come together in union together. So this is why I say we are the answer to Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6, when we ask for heaven to come to earth, we are the answer to that prayer. Heaven has come to earth, and it's you and it's me. So, we have a new temple. Now here's one, might be controversial, maybe not here. It's other places. Other places I've had to leave this one out because I don't know if they're ready for it. You got to, you know. But I, I, know, I know Adam's not a futurist, so I know he wouldn't preach that stuff here. New Jerusalem, Revelation 21.2. The New Jerusalem is us. It's the holy city coming down out of heaven, except now it's fully, fully unveiled. 
Okay? In Galatians 4.26, we see Paul's writing about this Jerusalem that is in heaven, but it hasn't been fully revealed or unveiled yet. It hasn't fully come down yet because 70 AD hadn't happened yet when the age of Moses came to an official end. So I'm using some eschatology terms there, but uh, it's okay. And so... Um, and so the holy city comes down. It's adorned as a bride for Christ. Who's the bride? The church. It's us. We are the bride. We're adorned as a bride. Where we are now the tabernacle of God among humankind. It's us. We're filled with His Spirit. We have communion with Him. We have intimacy with Him. We are called to be His bride. And the new Jerusalem comes down adorned as a bride. That's us. And now we've been fully unveiled and revealed to God because we are imbued with His Spirit. And so now we are the children of God, sons and daughters commissioned to do what God has always created us to do, which is steward the earth among many other things, but ultimately to reflect His nature, His love, His character everywhere we go. So, that's why we need no sun and moon anymore. Sun and moon denotes authority in scriptures, like earthly authorities. In the New Jerusalem, we don't need that. Why? Because we're governed by the Spirit of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You with me? Did I just blow up the book of Revelation for you? I hope so. The book of Revelation is the fifth gospel. Selah. That's another time. We can do an eschatology conference next furlough. So, that was all free. So all of this, the new covenant, a new image, and a new creation, is a glorification that's happening on the earth. But it's happening in the midst of suffering, pain, chaos, and confusion. So what does this all mean? Well, we read in Romans 8 that there's suffering and glory and that they go together. And so we too are called to go through the dark valleys with the Messiah in order to get through the other side. The path of suffering leads to the road the path of suffering leads to the road to authority and rule. We experience glory by passing through the valley of suffering. Jesus is the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, that's that passage. Jesus suffered so much, but that pathway of suffering, that cross-shaped path of suffering is what brought him to being ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. And if He is our Messiah, He is our leader, He is our high priest, He is our model, then that same cross-shaped path of suffering that Jesus walked, maybe we're supposed to walk it as well. I don't know, this is a hard one in America sometimes. We don't want to suffer. I don't like suffering. But we've got to understand, there's, there's, walking it with Jesus gives it a purpose. And if we trust Him enough and walk with Him through it. When we get to the other side, we have authority, we have rulership, there's anointing, there's breakthrough, and we can lead others in it. Jesus is the prototype. He is our model. Let's follow our model, and let's embrace that same cross-shaped path that Jesus walked. And so what did that look like for Jesus? It wasn't just a cross 
and going there. But it looked like Jesus interjecting himself everywhere he saw pain, suffering, loss, he positioned himself to be an answer to that problem. He didn't run away from the uncomfortable things that he saw, but he ran towards. Oh, the funeral procession, uh, the funeral procession of the widow who lost her son. He didn't turn around and walk the other way because it would be uncomfortable. He walked towards and ultimately raised the son from the dead to restore hope for the mom. Because everything Jesus does, there's always multiple layers to. That's right. That's one of the things I love is the different things that he does. Right? When he saw Zacchaeus up in a tree, he knew Zacchaeus was a traitor to his country. He was collaborating with an occupying army to cheat out his own people. Who wants to be associated with it? That would be uncomfortable to have dinner in his house. But Jesus didn't care. Jesus invited himself over. Why? To bring a restoration to Zacchaeus' life, to break off greed from his life. And what ends up happening? Zacchaeus gets saved, in my opinion, but then he gives half of his possessions to the poor, and he gives four times back to everyone who defrauded him. That whole village was changed by one encounter because Jesus did not walk away from an uncomfortable situation, but he ran towards and embraced it. 5,000 men, plus women and children. So let's put a number at about 13,000 people in the wilderness that are hungry. They listen to Jesus for a full day. He could have taken the back way out and let everyone fend for themselves and not be concerned with it. But what did he do? He said, oh, we got to do something about this. Called the little boy with five loaves and two fish. And what happens? He ends up feeding everybody. Supernatural provision. Because he stepped into the moment that was presented to him. That's right. Same with the demoniac, right? Who wants, no, the disciples even like, let's take the long way around, Jesus. But he's like, no. Go straight towards, the guy gets delivered. What's ends up happening is later on in Scripture, when he comes back to that area, everyone comes out to hear him because the man had proclaimed his testimony. That you don't see that expressly written, but he was in that area, and then the next time everyone came out to listen to Jesus because it was a sign and a wonder. And so if Jesus did not run from pain and suffering, and he positioned himself right in it, then we are called to do the exact same thing. Yep. It was the Pharisees who depositioned themselves away from anything that would make them unclean or uncomfortable or might cause their robes to get a little dirty or, you know... Might, someone might throw up on them or they might have a runny nose from someone with three diseases. All this stuff happens in Africa all the time. And so I have a choice. Do I love my clean pants more than I love this person? Of course not. I'll sit in the mud with someone and walk them through freedom if that's what it takes. Because their freedom is much more valuable than my pants. And I don't wear expensive pants anyway. Because I do live in Africa, so... Not a whole lot of point. So, we've established that. Jesus didn't run from pain and suffering, but he ran towards it to bring a heavenly solution to earth's problems. So let's keep that in mind. Now we're going to go to the next uh, part of Romans 8. So this is 22 to 30. Um, Yeah, we'll get all of it. So, continuing on, verse 22. Let me explain. 
We know that the entire creation is groaning together and going through labor pains together up until the present time. Not only so, we too, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit's life within us, New Covenant, are groaning within ourselves as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our body, new creation. We were saved, you see, in hope. But hope isn't hope if you can see it. Who hopes for what they can see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it eagerly, but also patiently. In the same way, too, the Spirit comes alongside and helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought to, but that same Spirit pleads on our behalf, hallelujah, with groanings too deep for words. And the searcher of hearts knows what the Spirit is thinking, because the Spirit pleads for God's people according to God's will. We know, in fact, that God works all things together for good with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Those he foreknew, you see, he also marked out in advance to be shaped according to the model of the image of his son, new image, so that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those he marked out in advance, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. All right, so there's a lot there. Biggest thing we see there is we see groaning. We see lots of groanings. Creation is groaning. We are groaning. The Spirit is groaning. Everyone is groaning. <laughs> ah! So what's happening with that? Well, let's start it one at a time. Creation. Creation is groaning. Why is creation growing? Because the world is in labor pains. Okay, we're all in labor pains, but creation is groaning in labor pains as well. Why? Because it wants to bring forth a new creation. See, remember, creation was subjected to sin, not of its choosing. It was subjected and came into bondage through what Adam chose to do when he fell. And so there's a groaning that's in creation because it knows that its current experience is not what it was created for. It's not what it was designed for. And so it's groaning because it's in pain. It's been subjective. It's in captivity. But it also knows that its freedom is coming near. Why? Because creation can recognize that the children of God are becoming unveiled and revealed to the world. It is a sign to creation that things are changing and that its time of bondage is coming to an end. And so it's groaning like a woman in childbirth. Now, there's a specific reason Paul is using this imagery. <laughs> All right? It's cool. N.T. Wright shared this, so I got this bit from N.T. Wright. But Roman poets at the time, and he quoted all these Roman poets from 2,000 years ago, talked about how everything was great in creation. Mother Earth was great. Mother Earth is serene as at peace, and everything is wonderful, everything is marvelous. Like multiple Roman poets from that day, their work still exists. So N.T. Wright was sharing that. So it's interesting that Paul uses the complete opposite idea to the believers as he's writing this to the church in Rome, 
directly contradicting what would be known in the day from the Roman poets. So everything that, like, the, the rappers of the day would be saying. Um, or Nickelback. No. That was for somebody. Somebody somewhere. I never listened to them. All right. And so, so he's using the idea that creation is in childbirth. Now, I've had the privilege of being in the room for all five of my kids being born. And uh, it's, a, it's an amazing experiment. Uh, experiment. <laughs> the first time was an experiment. It was so good, we decided to do it four more times. Um, and, uh, and so I remember, you know, we're, we're uh, first time we used uh, midwives uh, the first three times, and then we had to use hospital for various reasons after. Um, and so I remember being in a room as Rebecca is going through this process. And so when a woman gets to a six, and if you know, you know, if you don't know, you don't know, it's okay. Um, you'll know someday probably. Um, they hit something called transition. And it's a very intense moment of the process where you go from a six to a 10, okay? And if you know, you know, you know, it's okay. And so the sound that my wife made during that sound, the groanings, um, was very distinct and very unique. And so subsequently I knew when she was entering transition from, all the, from the groaning that she would make, I knew that very soon I would hold the new creation. Within an hour, once she started that, within an hour, hour and ten minutes, I knew a new creation would be coming forth. And so that's the imagery that Paul is using in explaining this. So, creation is groaning to bring forth a new creation. But then Paul writes that we're groaning. What are we groaning about? Well, we're groaning because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. When we come to Jesus, we taste of the age that is to come, and we begin this process of regeneration and transformation, but it's not fully complete on this side of eternity. And so there's a groaning inside of us because we've tasted this thing, we've seen that it's good, and we want more of it. We want the fullness in our lives. And I believe there's fullness, but I also know on this side of eternity, we still deal with death. We still deal with cancer, strife, wars, broken relationships. And so there's a fullness that will come on that day. But everything is available in the kingdom of God. For we have received of his fullness, grace upon grace. And so we're groaning because we, we've had a taste and we want more. And we're groaning deep inside, God, I want more, I want more, I want more. And so we groan to put away our mortality, to put, be clothed with immortality, where there's no more corruption, yes. to be made fully whole. That's why we're groaning. We want to be made fully whole. Yeah. Yes. Creation groans because it wants to be set right. We groan to be made fully whole. So why does Holy Spirit groan? Holy Spirit groans because He longs to see God's people made whole so that His people can set the creation right. So Holy Spirit is groaning over all of that. 
And so that's why Holy Spirit, it says, He is pleading on our behalf according to God's will. So Holy Spirit is in perfect unity with the Father's will um, in all of this, and He is our advocate. He's working on our behalf, and He's groaning. He hears the groan of creation. Creation's groaning to be set free, but be, it knows its time is short because the children of God are being made whole, and they are being revealed. Creation sees that. Holy Spirit sees both of them groaning, and creation wants to see, Holy Spirit wants to see both of those things happen. So it's groaning and it's partnering with us and with the creation to see all that happen so that the fullness of what Christ has accomplished at the cross would be manifest in all of creation. And so Holy Spirit is groaning, pleading on our behalf. He's partnering with us on our behalf so that we can do what God has called us to do, which is set the creation right. And so all of this constitutes a statement of our Christian vocation. That's what Romans 8 is about. It's a statement of our Christian vocation to be made whole so that we can set the creation right. That even in the midst of the world's pain, God's Spirit shares in that pain through God's own people. And if we are led by His Spirit, then He leads us into those places of pain. Why? So that we can bring a breakthrough to those people that are in pain or to the areas of creation which are in chaos, and then we can bring peace. We are the conduits of bringing a new creation on the earth because we are a new creation. We are where heaven meets earth. So everywhere we step, we bring access to the resources of heaven everywhere that we go. And so if we don't position ourselves in those places, then how are those places going to experience the kingdom of God? How are they going to experience transformation and change? It's through us. God has decided for whatever reason, to use us as his instruments of bringing transformation on the earth. Well, I think part of the reasons is to be a big thumb in the devil's eye that the very agent the devil used to bring the corruption, God's going to use to bring a restoration. Because God's a redemptive God like that, and he likes to stick his thumb in the devil's eye repeatedly. And so this vocation... This is a call to action. It's a call to prayer, but it's a call to action. And so the glorification that Paul's writing about is not for us to be fat, happy Christians in America having great services on Sunday morning. The glorification is for the purpose of what? To rescue creation from corruption. You see, our vocation and our identity are not separate things. This is the problem we have in the West with our dualistic thinking, and it's really not your fault. It's how our thought construct of Western thought was created with layer upon layer, enlightenment, rationalism, scientific method, theory, all that kind of stuff is all layered on our thoughts. So those of us that are born in the West and grow up in the West, this is how we think. And so we separate things into boxes, which is dualism, to use a word, where we separate conjoined ideas into its separate factions, and that helps us process things, but it's actually not biblical. It's not biblical thought. It's not Eastern thought. And so we take concepts that are supposed to be like this, 
and we separate them here. And this is why we believe people can believe strange things, right? They can believe that uh, uh, God is a God of love, and you know, um, but He also does this. Uh, he also is, you know, 9-11 was God's judgment on America. Um, you have these thoughts that really have no intersection, but we hold them in different places because of dualism, because of how we think. And we need to start reconciling that and bringing it all together because all that was an aside, getting to the point where our identity and our vocation are like this. Who we are and what we do are not separatable. Beautiful. Okay. This is important. Is there going to be fruit on our tree? This is where James comes in. Faith without works is dead. Works won't save you, but if there's no works on the tree, then we really truly have to ask, are we saved? So here's a line. I'm not crossing the line. Yes, but I like this. Okay, I'm still working it out. But if we've truly said yes to the grace of God, and we're in the process of transformation, that transformation should lead to fruit in our lives. If we don't have fruit on our tree, then we truly have to ask, are we in the process of transformation, and do we really know Jesus? Because the gospel is about transformation. It's not about, I'm okay now, I can stay in my, remain in my state. That's not the gospel. Anybody who preaches that is preaching an aberrant gospel. The gospel is about turning, transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Beautiful. So if that's not what's happening in our lives, and that's not being manifested in our outward expression of our faith, then we have to ask the question, have we truly been saved? Have we truly come to Jesus? Because this old you know, statistic that we see, 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work, to me that shows there's a problem, that there's too many people in the church that don't actually believe. Come on. Yes. That's right. What if 100% of the believers did 100% of the work? <laughs> it would be worldwide awakening. It would be heaven on earth. It would be transformation. We would have a bride ready to receive the king, and then we might see the king come. But the king ain't coming for a bride that doesn't, isn't dressed. Yep. <laughs> and I know I don't have to say it here, but if you're watching, unpack your bags. We're going to be here a while. Yeah. Just saying. That's right. <laughs> Futurism's garbage. Sorry, it's demonic theology. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. I know I could say that here. I can't say that in other places. So what we see here is that Romans 8 is a call. It's a call to us. It's a call to vocation. We, you, me, us, we are called to set the creation right. That is what we are called to. Now, that can look very different for all of us. For me, that's Africa. God has given me a metron in East and Southern Africa. And so that's where I'm spending my life, working to set the creation right there. Whether it's working with leaders, whether it's helping leaders' marriages, whether it's evangelizing, whether it's healing the sick, whether it's bringing uh, innovative ideas to how people do ministry, um, it's investing in people so that uh, business leaders, 
Um, it's a wide, spec wide spectrum, and, but it can be all of that, okay? Unless you're, don't do what I'm called to do, do what you're called to do. Be yourself, do it with God. Okay, That's sum right. it up. So what does that look like here in West New York, New Jersey? That's right. What does that look like? If you're investing your life to set the creation right, how are you doing that? I know a couple people's stories. I know how they're doing, but some of you I haven't met yet. And then, so that looks differently. Some people are involved in crisis pregnancy. Some people are involved in helping people get out of addiction. Um, some people are adopting kids from Burundi. It's amazing. Um, some people... Um, some people are volunteering at kids' church at, at, on Sunday service, loving on kids uh, during the service. Like all of it is kingdom, all of it has value, all of it has purpose, and all of it is about setting the creation right. That's right. So just be a part of doing that. Beautiful. That's the call and commission. Like everyone has a seed. Doesn't matter how small you have a seed. Plant it in the soil of faith, and you're going to watch God grow it supernaturally. So, to get to the end, I love 29 and 30. It's part of my favorite verse. It's where Calvinists get their theology from. Um, but I'm not a Calvinist, so we're going to blow that up right here. And those he marked out in advance, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what does that mean? The Greek word for called means to invite. So he has called all of humanity. He has invited all of humanity to come in to this new covenant to experience this new creation. Who does God choose? God chooses everyone who says yes. That is the elect which is available for anyone. Because remember, it says in uh, 2 uh, Peter 3, 9, that God's, what is God's will? That none should perish, but all come to repentance. So in God's mind, this invitation is for every human being on planet Earth. And He chooses every single person who says yes. That's where free will comes in. Okay? Now, those who He invited, those who say yes, then what? He justifies them. What does justification mean? It means to be proclaimed righteous. God has proclaimed you righteous. When you say yes to the invitation, He has proclaimed you righteous because you're saying yes through Christ and through what Christ has done. That means you have, you're, you've been washed away. You're no longer disqualified. There's nothing in your life that disqualifies you because you've been washed by the blood of Jesus. You've said yes to Him. You've died with Him and you've rose again into new life. So you have been proclaimed righteous. God has proclaimed you righteous. Because of that then, those who he justifies, he also glorifies. Because you've been proclaimed righteous, now there's a glorification that is on your life so that everything in heaven is available to you. Everything that's gloryful, everything that's glorification, all the glory that exists is now available to you. Why? Because you've been proclaimed righteous... You've been approved by God and you've said yes to the invitation that he's invited you to. So you are brought into the family and there's only glory in the family of God. And so then the glorification then is what we release on the earth, which sets the creation right. That's what Paul was talking about earlier in the chapter. 
Liberation comes to the creation through the glorification of the children of God. That's you and me, glorified by God because he has chosen us. We've said, yes, he's chosen us. We're proclaimed righteous. Now we're filled and imbued with his spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we have this glory now that surrounds us. We have this glory perimeter everywhere we go. And so when we position ourselves where there's pain and suffering, loss and confusion in the world, we bring that glorification into those situations and circumstances. And so that we then bring a change and a transformation because we carry the presence of God everywhere we go. So this is what's going on in Romans 8. This is Romans 8 theology. And this is the center point of New Covenant Christianity, New Covenant theology, this is what Paul's writing about in this chapter. This is not side stuff. This is central to the gospel. Central. Our identity as his children and our vocation in setting the creation right, it is who we are. And we cannot separate them anymore. There's no separation. It's like this. So. That's good news. And that's the gospel. See, we were saved for a purpose. We were saved for a purpose. So, let's stand up and pray. I want to pray. I want us to, I want Holy Spirit to like really write this on our hearts. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge you in this room. We know you're already here. And I just ask that you would manifest your presence and increase our awareness of your presence here. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do what Paul writes, that you would work on our behalf, that you would plead with us and partner with us to help us become whole so that we can do what God has created us to do which is to set the creation right and so Holy Spirit I pray that you would just move on us here right now and that you would move on our hearts where we need to yield you'd bring us to a place where we yield to Jesus But also I pray that you would open our eyes to see the creation that's in chaos. And Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear the groanings of creation, to hear where things aren't right, that we would see it and hear it. But Lord, it would be more than that, that we would be motivated enough with our love to step out of our comfort zones and step into those places of pain, loss, and chaos. Lord, that you would... Uh, open our hearts with a supernatural compassion and love that would overcome our fear. Because that's what keeps us from stepping out is fear. But it would overwhelm our fear so that we could be who you've called us to be, that we would position ourselves just like Jesus in the midst of it all to bring a heavenly solution to an earthly problem. Lord, we know we're your children. We've said yes to you, and we, you've adopted us into your family. You have 
filled us with your spirit and you've also come upon us with Holy Spirit and empowered us to be like Christ here in the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would match that empowerment with an understanding of who we are and what we are called to do, that it would be like, as Jeremiah says, a fire that has been shut up in our bones, that we can't sit on the sideline any longer, that we can't sit on the bench, but we would check ourselves into the game. So Holy Spirit, bring that sweet conviction. Where we have shrunk back in the past, out of fear, Lord, we repent. We say we're sorry. And we ask that you would just write a new script, write a new page. And we ask for new opportunities, whatever that looks like for each one of us, that you'd give us vision and dream as to what each one of us are to do with this. That we would see, that we would see a vision that would mix with our own DNA. And that you would empower us and motivate us through love to step out into it. Even if all the provision's not there yet, we would step in faith. And we would live by faith. Yep. Yep. Yes. Your word says, all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. Yep. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us. Lead us today, tomorrow, every day of our life where we're supposed to stop for the one. God, slam the brakes on us so that we can learn how to do that so we do that as part of who we are. That it wouldn't be a special thing, it would be a normal thing. So God, we're asking for that transformation in us so that we can be who you've called us to be and do what you've called us to do. That we'd be effective in discipling nations. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts and fill us with a temerity and a strength inside of us to say yes. Yes, yes. That we would not walk away, but we would walk towards, that we would be willing to be uncomfortable. for the sake of loving people and loving you, that we would follow your lead. Because you're a good father. And even though we might walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you also lead us to quiet waters and green pastures and rest for our soul in the midst of all of it. And because you're a good daddy, we we can trust you and follow you. So Holy Spirit, come and lead us, convict us, open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we can be about our daddy's business and with you set the creation right. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.